0: Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thank you for bringing the church into your living room, uh, dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie and it's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And it is my joy as well, not only to open up the scriptures this morning, but to open up the scriptures for a brand new sermon series uh, that will take us from now all the way up until Advent. like That seems like a long ways from now. It's about 15 weeks, I believe, if I've counted correctly. So we've got this 15-week series. In What we're doing is this series called Creation and Chaos, Our Origin Story. And so we want to go back to the very beginning. And so I want to read our scripture today, and then I'll give us a bit of a setup for how we are even going to be thinking about this particular series. But I want to invite you, if you're able, please stand, all right, and turn to... You can I'm gonna read Genesis one, verses one to two. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. You can also scan the QR code that is in the pew. Uh, It'll bring up a thing that says sermon notes um, and the text will be there. But hear God's word for us uh, this morning. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we uh, get into this th- this morning, uh, a couple of things just by way of introduction, uh, I would encourage you to have that text in front of you. We're going to make our way just through those couple of, couple of verses. Um, we will get further into chapter one beginning next week. Uh, but I want you to know just like my cards on the table. Um, I, I love the whole Bible, all right? Uh, but I like I love the book of Genesis, all right? Um, I have a particular just affinity uh, for it. Um, uh, true story here, um, we had a church name that almost became very different than what we have right now. About 15, about this time, 15 years ago, uh, we were beginning the process of getting ready to call a core group together, all right? Which basically meant, all right, who are our friends and family that might join us in this crazy endeavor um, to plant a, a new church? Who's any random person we might meet on the street um, to say, hey, you wanna come be part of this new church? I promise you, it's not a cult, I swear. All right, but just come come join, right? Um, and so kind of in that, that mode, um, and I was doing an apprenticeship with Crosspoint Church down in Lake Nona. And it was before we had decided that God was calling us to kind of link arms with the same church name and, and mission. So I was developing plans uh, for an entirely different like church name, all right? Um, And as we called people, literally our very first vision meeting, all right, is this vision casting time, um, which I don't recommend going this way. Be like, here's our vision. And then the next time we gather, here's our new vision. We've changed names, right? But that very first one, I welcomed everybody and said, we are planting. We believe God has called us to plant a new church. And I love the book of Genesis so much about what it speaks to, how it informs your life and my life in this world that we inhabit, that literally the new church that we're gonna be starting was gonna be called Genesis, all right? Um, not because I have an affinity for the, the rock band by that name, all right? If some of you are old enough to remember that. Uh, but I just love the book, Beginnings, the origins, and, and how it informs like all of life. And with that, our mission statement was going to be helping you connect your story to God's story. Now, as God would have it, he I'm so thankful that he's called us to be part of this overall movement of cross point churches, but that part has never gone away. And in fact, that affinity, that affection for the book of Genesis, and even that little tagline, helping you connect your story to God's story. The reality is this, like you and I find our significance, our stories begin to make sense when we understand how it fits within the broader story of God's scriptures. And we have to go in order to understand that that I think the best thing we can do is go back to the beginning, to go back to the start. Like how does the Bible actually begin? And so what I want to put before you as we get into this by way of introduction, kind of this morning, is hear this as an invitation. I believe like you and I need something to help orient us to like, what is our purpose? What's the meaning that we have? How are we to view relationships and work and like Sabbath rest. How do these early stories, what we're going to be doing is we're not taking all of the book of Genesis, but we are going to be in Genesis. We're going to look at the first 11 chapters. What's Theologians call the primeval history. It kind of sounds foreboding, right? The primeval history, but like we're going to journey through that, and we'll get the stories of like the creation account, the account of Adam and Eve, and the the fruit on the tree and the fall. We'll get the accounts of Cain and Abel, Noah and the ark, right? We're going to move toward like uh, the the Tower of Babel. I mean, all of these things that perhaps you're familiar with, and if you are, my hope is that you'll hear them kind of with new ears and and eyes to be able to see like, okay, how does this like impact my life? How does it impact your life? Like right here, right now, but also collectively as the church. And so I want you to hear this series really as an invitation to dive into figuring out like, how does our story connect with God's ultimate story? And not to stand sort of in an objective way, kind of just analyzing it. Like perhaps you're new to Christianity, you're new to the story. And I think there can be a tendency to just do that but even if we've been around it for a long time i think the tendency can be like well oh, i know that and we sort of stand detached and the invitation friends the invitation that the lord has for us anytime we open up the bible but in particular in the book of genesis is to step into the story not to stand detached from it like we're you know maybe a scientist in a lab kind of looking at something i mean there's there's a good and healthy thing to do to analyze things to look at it we're for those things but the invitation goes deeper than that. Like, would you and I step into the story and open ourselves up to be able to have the God of the universe remind us about what is most true, what is good, what is beautiful. Like, how did he design things originally to be? And to find those places and maybe open ourselves up even to like, what resonates? What, what speaks life, even in the midst of hardship? And to find our stories beginning to make more sense. I love the words, I wanna read this before we get into the first part of the text. Glenn Scrivener, he wrote a book called 321, The Story of God, The World and You. And he says it this way regarding the Bible, it's a tale that begins before every other beginning. A God who is three in one, a cosmos born of community, a catastrophe unleashed at a stroke, a tragedy entered by love a creator made creature and killed, a corpse conquering death by dying, a Lord with scars rising to rule, a world invited to share God's life, a universe renewed and redeemed. And now look where he continues as he's kind of laid out for us. Like, okay, here's how the story begins. He says this in light of our story. There is certainly a strange, this is certainly a strange story. And you might think that belief in this tale condemns you to the loony fringe, but actually the story at the heart of Christianity is every story. There's a golden age of innocence, mistrust, betrayal, unrequited love, a fall from grace, murder and intrigue, a pit of despair, a hero's epic journey and a fight to the death, victory through sacrifice and a happy ending complete with wedding and singing and that's like all our stories, but the Bible says it's God's story in two. In fact, here's the claim I want you to consider. The Bible says it was God's story first. And this story makes sense of our little stories. So push through the strangeness and you'll find that everything becomes more familiar. Come into the Christian story and it will send you out again with renewed passion and engagement. And friends, that's the invitation. That's my hope for this series that yes, we would see our stories, that like we would step into it. And then we would realize, oh, in light of this story, we are stepping out then with this renewed passion, a renewed understanding of what our place is in the cosmos, what God wants to do in and through us. But as the story begins, if you were to pick up a novel, right? You pick up a book um, and you're getting ready, you would see the title, And one of the first things you would likely notice as well is who wrote the book? And so what I wanna look at this morning as we think about story is who's the author of the story. And so let's start there as we look at Genesis chapter one, verse one, keeping in mind uh, this great quote by G.K. Chesterton, I'd always felt life a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. So I think we need to start where the Bible begins. We need to start by asking like, okay, Lord, like, who are you? Who is the storyteller? Who is the author? And so as we read just a moment ago, the Bible begins with these opening words, right? Here's our origin story. Here's the origin of everything. In the beginning, God. And if we had taken the time right now to read through all of chapter one, we will get into that more next week. But if we had spent time reading through not just verses one and two, but if we had gone through all of chapter one, theologians would comment that they would mark that there's some 35 times that the name that God, the title, this Elohim, this this name that appears here is spoken of. It is the author's way, meaning the, the human author, that believe that Moses is contributing to the writing of this. And I'll explain that more later, particularly even next week. But right now, just know the way God has chosen to introduce the story is we think about the storyteller, just know this he's repeating it over and over and over again. Like if there's a sense, like you read through it and you're like, okay, this is a bit of a broken record. He'd be like, yes, exactly. That's what I want. I do not want you to miss that this is a story about God and who he is and his character. And if we understand him, as A.W. Tozer spoke, of like the more we rightly understand who God is, it actually helps us make sense of who we are. And so it is without a doubt a story from beginning to end about God and his And Now that includes us. But this story did not begin, right? Like in the beginning, and then there's a blank spot for you to fill in your name or me to put my name, right? It includes you and me. And there are things that it's gonna speak to, I think with such power and and grace, It's, it's so encouraging. And yet let's not miss it. In the beginning, God. And so as we think about these things, have you ever considered how, does, how should one think about like who God is even before the creation? Because what we know is like, God has always existed. And if you can perfectly explain that, wrap your mind around that, like you're welcome to the microphone. Um, but uh, I mean, it's mind boggling and yet we believe it to be true. And so how are we to think about who he is even like before any of this existed, before you existed, before I existed, before any person who's ever walked the planet existed? for the oceans were there, before the stars were in the sky, for any of it. And I've been reading through a work by a theologian philosopher named Christopher Watkin. Um, And uh, by reading through, I mean, it's like this five, 600 page book that I'm like, oh, this is gonna take me a little bit, but I've been very much enjoying it. And as as he's going through kind of the storyline of the Bible, he begins to give some categories of like, how are we to understand The nature and character of God, even the ways that God reveals to us throughout the story of the scripture, like who he is, like independent of anything that has to do with this creation. So I want to put a few of these things before you. Not the only way to talk about God, but I think these are some helpful categories because as we make our way through not only the rest of Genesis chapter one, but as we continue to make our way through these opening 11 chapters, we will see God's involvement, we will see God's nature, his character. We'll see the way God has compassion and mercy. So how are we to think about this God? And so the first category I just want to put before you, we'll kind of go through these rather quickly, but is just know this, that, that God reveals himself to be personal. He is not some abstract deity that is simply sort of like wound up, like he's maybe created everything, but then he stepped away from it in some sort of deistic way. That is not the God of the Bible. God reveals himself to be one that Jesus, right? When even when his disciples say, hey, how should we pray? He says, oh, I'll teach you how to pray. Like our father, Like God wants to be known intimately, personally. He's not just this abstract nebulous sort of floating out there thing. He's not something that simply is just way out there and we're not to have a relationship with. No, he is a God who reveals himself to be personal. And because of his personhood, in essence, like of who he is, it has massive implications for you and me as people made in his image. But I love the way before we even look at that, the apostle Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter one, says he, this God, Jesus, the creator is before all things. So before anything ever was, he is, he's before all things. And then it tells us this, and in him, all things hold together. Like right now, your ability to process words that are being spoken and come through your, your your ears and your brain process, all of that, like, that's because he's holding it all together, all right? The breath you just took, it's because he's holding it all together, right? Your heart pumping blood through your body, he's holding it all together. The fact that gravity is doing its thing it's because he's holding it all together and we're just not like flung out in the universe somewhere. He literally is so involved. He is... He is a God that is personal and he is known, he's inviting us to know him. This is the God that we worship. And so in this work by Christopher Watkin, he says this, he said, we need to consider, we've got a couple options before us. Do you really wanna live in a world with an impersonal God? And I don't think we do, but oftentimes we can operate that way. But if we rightly understand who God is in his personal nature, it opens things up world that's like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. Hear these words. He says, these are the options. Either we live in a universe in which everything personal eventually reduces to the impersonal or we live in a universe in which everything impersonal can be traced back to the personal God. Those are two very different universes to live in. Which one do you find more satisfying? Which produces a basis for a fairer, more compassionate society? A universe where everything personal reduces to the impersonal, or a universe where everything impersonal is transfigured by the reality and the will of the personal God? Friends, we want the universe. What we were created for is to recognize, oh, it's this personal God. Because if he is personal, and can be known and we're made in this image, then do you know what this means? This is what fosters and helps cultivate a, a kind, a generous, a compassionate, a merciful culture. This is what enables us as the church to be like, oh, we're made in his image. And so every single person, regardless of whether or not the society views them as a productive member of society, right? Every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. We're going to get into this further as we get into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in the coming weeks. But just know this, if there's no personal God, then this world we live in, I mean, it is going to be cold and harsh because at the end of the day, if there's no personal God, it's just like, well... Okay, then it's just survival of the fittest and everybody's just to get theirs. But we worship a God who is known. Along with that, though, God is also, he is is absolute. And so he can be known, but he also is like the ultimate reality. And so Watkins says this in regards to this truth about God. But what makes the biblical God stand out from other deities is that he is not merely one personal God among a pantheon of personalities. Fill in the blank, right? Like Zeus, Athena, or Poseidon, but his personalness is absolute. And then he begins to define it. Like, well, what does absolute mean? Here he says it, where absolute means self-sufficient, not relying on anything outside himself for his existence. I mean, think about that. Like we try and operate, like, oh, well, we're self-sufficient. Oh come on. Really? Like there's nothing about me that's self-sufficient and you or you if we're really honest. But God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need you, he doesn't need me. Don't at any point think that man, God actually made us and made this creation, right? Because he was bored or he was lonely, God needed friends, so he made you and me. Like that's not it. He is completely self-sufficient. So one level, that's what absolute means, all right? Self-sufficient. But also, secondly, fundamental or simple, not able to be broken down into more basic parts. This compound of personalness and absoluteness or what John Frame has called absolute personality theism is the distinctive of the biblical God. Do you realize how wholly different he is from you and me? And yet we have this truth and yet there's a personalness to him that he can be known, that he enters in, that he cares about you and he cares about me. We'll unpack this more in the weeks to come as well, but that God is relational, that God exists in this perfect community of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We see early hints of that in the book of Genesis. There's a lot of debate about like, is the Trinity really spoken of in in Genesis chapter one? But there's things where it says, all right, God said, let us make man in our image. Not let me make, but let us make. Or perhaps even here in verse one, in the beginning God. This word Elohim, which is in the plural. These might be, this is not a well-developed doctrine of the Trinity at this point, but there are these hints, these ways that we begin to understand, oh, God exists. And for us, God exists in community. And the reason you and I have that ache and that longing for community to be known by others, as terrifying as that might be, right? Is because God himself exists in community and you've been made in his image. After the service today, we have this opportunity for this cross point connect. We are doing this not because we needed, like, yeah, you know, there's just, we're not busy enough. Let's just add one more thing to the calendar. It is so that people take steps to being more further known, involved in one another's life, to be the church, to not just say we're a family, but to live as we truly are as a family, to connect in relationships. What is that all rooted in? It's the fact that God himself is relational. And then lastly, we need to see that what emerges here over and over again is this description that not, is, not only is God loving, but God himself, the way he describes himself, names himself, is not just that he's loving, but that God actually is love. Like an astounding claim. This is why John says this in First John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And do you know that love? Part of us understanding our story and how it fits in the bigger story is like, oh, we're made to be loved. And we're always looking for that love and that sense of connection. And God loves us so much that he sent his son. And then this phrase, and God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Say abides, think of John 15, right? I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. It's this idea of connection. It's connecting your story to God's story. And it's all rooted in the fact that God is love. It's out of the overflow of love that he creates this world, that he creates you. He creates me. He creates the cosmos. What an incredible thing. And if you're wondering like, oh, are we gonna get into like, hey, is the earth young? Is it old and creation and evolution and all, all of that, right? We're gonna solve all of that next week. I promise you. <laughs> So come back, yeah. But what if it's trying to tell a bigger story? It's trying to remind us of like, hey, there's gonna be things that Christians agree to disagree about, but I want you to know who I am, God is saying. One of the most frequent ways that God describes himself, it shows up in Exodus 34 amongst other places, building on this theme, like what does love entail? I mean, look at these words, the Lord, the Lord, It's this way of grabbing our attention and saying, hey, when we're talking about God, the one we've been singing to, the one we're talking about right now, like who is he? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. This is one of the most repeated refrains about who our God is. Do you know this God? Meaning he's merciful that you and I don't get what we deserve. We deserve wrath. We deserve punishment. We don't get it. Instead, he's gracious. We get this unmerited favor bestowed upon us. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding. It's not just like he's got a little bit of love, all right? It's like he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It means the way God is love works itself out is like he's immensely patient. He's immensely kind. He's the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And even when we break covenant, he continues to pursue. And that's what we're gonna see throughout these opening 11 chapters. In the midst of a creation that is made beautiful and harmonious and everything as God intends it to be. And our first parents break covenant with God and go and do their own thing. And the way that story keeps playing out, God continues to be faithful. God continues to pour out love and mercy. Do you know God in this way? This is, we look again at those opening words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sort of this summary statement, we're gonna get more into the specifics as verse three and following pick up that we'll get into next week. But in the beginning, this God created and the language that is used there, all right? Means that he didn't have existing material to work with. You and I always need material. We always need resources. We cannot do anything without some resources to tap into, right? We're going to make something. We're going to make some food. We're going to, well, we need some ingredients, right? Like God doesn't actually need any of that. The Latin phrase down through the years that refers to what is happening here in the opening pages of Genesis, this is ex nihilo, like out of nothing, that God literally creates everything out of nothing. And so we can read their passage in the book of Revelation, Romans, other spots. I'll read one to you out of Hebrews chapter 11 that speaks of this by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He's got the power and the might and the creativity, strength, all of it out of nothing. It doesn't operate the same way you and I operate. And so do we know that God? Now, friends, as we look at this, what I wanna put before you is we just look at verse two, then it tells us that he created the heavens and the earth. And there's this little description that's, that's given, all right, where it tells us that as he begins to get ready and he begins in verse three, he's gonna, he's gonna speak and light is gonna burst forth and all of these things, it gives a description of like, okay, like what's there though? What we see is there's a void in the story. In the first part of verse two, it says this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. To be without form and void, like there's no structure and there's nothing that's really in place and there's no boundaries. And there's there's nothing filling it. Like literally what God does in creation as we'll see is he begins to create these particular spaces. He creates these boundaries, all right? Um, he gives form to things and then begins to actually fill them. Like everything in the universe is described as we'll see in Genesis chapter one as, as coming out of this God taking things and shaping things and giving distinctness to things and the spaces where things can actually flourish. We read about this, like in Job 38, when God reveals himself to be the one that, like, yeah, you wanna know the boundaries? Like I told the sea, all right? When you stand at the ocean's edge, all right? The water doesn't just keep coming, right? Like I told the sea, like where to stop. It's like that level of boundary. Like he speaks and these things are. And so what we see at the beginning of verse two, right? In this early part of this story is that the earth, it was without form and void, this sort of nothingness. And there's a really, if we were reading this in the ancient text, all right, I am by no means any Hebrew scholar. I think I've forgotten most of the classes I took in seminary about that, but I do remember uh, this one phrase. I um, mean, it spoke of here, the f- without form and void, because if you were reading it in the ancient language, it would actually, it kind of has this rhyme, this, this rhythm, this particular cadence to it. And the words that are used there are th- this, they bring this together is for without form and void is tohu, Vabohu, all right? It's fun, we should say it together. Tohu, say it, tohu. Vabohu, yeah, all right, like that's that's kind of fun to say. It's got this rhyme to it, right? And so this is what is being spoken here. It's like, oh, it's just this emptiness. It's just this darkness, this blackness. There's, there's, it's not filled with anything. It's not ordered. It's not the place where humanity is to, to live yet. It's not been fashioned for the animals. It's not been fashioned for the, you know, the birds up in, in the skies or the fish in the sea or all the creatures on the land, including us. It's tohu vabohu. That's literally what it is. And what's so amazing about the scriptures is I believe like this is true because it happened. Like this is describing God and his ultimate reality and who he is and how he works. But friends, it's also true because this story continues to play out. Like I believe that there are still things in your life and my life that feel like an emptiness, a meaninglessness as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Like it's just like a vapor. Like it's like a mist and it's gone. We pursue all of these things because we don't know what to do with the tohu vabohu that we continue to experience because I think if you were honest, right? And you and I were sitting down and we were having an honest conversation, I was honest with you and you were honest with, with me or you're honest with a friend, you're like known by somebody, there would be this ache. There'd be those things that you would speak of. It's like, yeah, okay, I, I know this and I know this about God, but man, there still seems to be those things that feel void, empty, meaningless, darkness, without form. Like we continue to feel some of this this tohu vabohu, what do we do with that? And this book in particular is going to lay out for us like what goes tragically wrong when we stop believing the promises of God, stop resting in who he is and our relationship with him and think that, oh, we need something else to fill us. And ever since the fall, getting a little bit ahead, right? We have been dealing with, trying to deal with this on our own. So much of what drives you and me is this feeling of, oh, we're without form. There's a meaninglessness, there's a void. I want us to consider this question, not only this morning, but throughout the series. Like, what are you doing with the void? What are you doing with the tohu v'abohu that you actually experience? Because you experienced it this past week. I experienced it this past week, that there, that there are things that's like, man, that's just not right. It doesn't feel like what God intends things to be. Or maybe there's things that like, no, that is part of God's good plan. And yet we believe a lie and think, oh no, there must be something more. And so our hearts are constantly like in this state of like restlessness and we don't know what to do. And as we will explore greater depth in the weeks to come, we have to consider what is it even in this good creation that God has made that we think, oh, that'll fill it. That will fill that void. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I've got this void, but man, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just get somebody to see the good work that I'm doing, if I could just have this relationship, if I could look a certain way, achieve whatever for you is like your ideal weight or level of fitness. If I could have this particular home, if I could have this experience, if I could get into that school or that program and on their own, like none of those things are necessarily bad, but do you see the Tohu, Vabohu that continue, we continue to wrestle with or like, ah, there's the, this sense, this angst. And what we end up doing is forgetting that the story we're invited into is a story where God has made this abundant creation. And I think one of the dominant narratives that we live by, and not to put this on you, I'll put it on me maybe you'll relate to this, is it can be so easy to forget the abundance of our God. So easy to forget all that he's given us in this creation, even amidst the the brokenness, to to fail to, to see all the ways that he's provided. And rather than live in glad worship of the creator, we buy into a narrative that's like, can I just consume? Can I have a little bit more of what I already possess? Or can I have the newer version of that thing I already own? Can I upgrade to that? like, maybe that will bring some satisfaction. You know, I can hit that Amazon Prime 2 to 6 delivery today, right? And that thing will have, that'll be, don't order it right now, okay? Like that, right? Like that, oh, maybe that'll satisfy. And it's so easy to buy into that consumption mindset. It's not the only way we seek to fill the void, but it's one of the ways. I think this statistic is likely very outdated. It's probably more than this, but people that study these things at like a minimum, the average American, and we're in the like 5,000 plus advertisements that we're bombarded with every single day, right? It's not even random stuff now. It's all like, oh, they heard me talking about that. Now it's on my phone. And so we're bombarded and the great tendency because we're just, at times, looking for just what's the easy way. out. I don't wanna feel this. I want to feel something. I want, I want like the endorphin rush of just buying this new thing or whatever. In a rather comical way, um, the author Donald Miller. I remember coming across this quote a few years ago. Um, he, he wrote this, um, and if you drive the car that he talks about in here, he's not, don't don't be offended, all right? Um, uh, it's just, this. it's taking good things and elevating them. He says this, man, he's like talking about like this angst that we feel. And he's like, so we watch a commercial advertising a new Volvo, and suddenly we feel, oh, our life isn't as content as it once was. Our life doesn't have the new Volvo in it. And the commercial convinces us we will only be content if we have a car with 47 airbags. And so we begin our story of buying a Volvo only to repeat the story with a new weed eater and then a new home stereo. And this can go on for a lifetime. And then if we think of our life as a story, right? We you think of it as a movie, like when the credits roll, we wonder what we did with our lives. What was the meaning? Like, I don't think any of us, right? Like, can we get up at our funeral, the eulogy and be like, man... He really was gifted at, at buying like really responsible cars, right? You know, um, not knocking, like, sure, enjoy the vault. Oh, that's great. Enjoy the weed eater. It's great. I mean, you can talk about these things. We'll get into it. The weed eater, yeah, you're subduing creation, man. Come on. It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. All of it, enjoying music, nothing wrong with that. But let's be honest. Sometimes there's just that it's, there's that void. There's that tohu abohu that just won't go away. And we're like, I'll grab for that. And maybe it will satisfy him. But unfortunately, it's not the new creation that we're made for. It just leads to more chaos. And so let's close with this by looking at the last part of verse two, the hope for your story. So we've looked at the author of the story. We've looked at there's this void in the story, but thankfully what God does here, what we see in the last part of of verse two, he says these words, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Friends, this is a picture. I'll unpack it more in a moment, but this this picture, like it's meant to create this sense of like anticipation, like, oh, like what's coming next. Like this is this cliffhanger sort of moment, right? Like if this was modern day, like if this was like some series, television series that we were watching, right? Like we would read this and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We've been like, he created the heavens and the earth. There's this void, this emptiness, darkness, right? And then there's the spirit of God. And then it would go to the credits and it would be like, next episode starts in 30 29, 28, right? And we would we would click, click. Oh, I'm all in. We're going like five, six, seven episodes deep tonight, right? Like that's how this is leaving us. And it's and it's not that God, after the second verse, is just like, all right, well, you know, it's it's emptiness, it's meaningless, it's it's void, it's it's there, like good luck. It really is, even in this, not only is it a cliffhanger, but it also is communicating something that to the original audience would have been like, oh like we're beginning to see and they don't yet know where it's all going to go, right? But it's not just to come back next week. It's like right here in this moment, there's some beauty. There's a reason to have hope in this language that is used where it says the spirit of God was hovering. He's there, he's out over the chaotic waters, which again, I keep saying this, but we'll get into some of that even more next week, but it's just about like how God is sovereign over it all, that he's not thrown off by this. He's the ultimate ruler. He has ultimate authority. But there's also that word hover can literally refer to as a mother bird fluttering over her young. Like you picture a mother bird caring for those, that little brood that's in the nest there. Right? Maybe it's really sort of like this picture. It's like the, the mother comes back to the nest, right? And there's that, that picture. It's sort of like, all right, there with this, this care and this compassion there to, to feed, to look out for. And that picture there of these little birds with their mouths just wide open, man, that, that's us. Like, we are helpless. We're just like, we can't do it on our own. Like, it's this picture, though, where God is hovering over. And there's this anticipation of, like, oh, you just wait. Wait till you see what he does. He's merciful and he's tender and he's compassionate. Like this mother bird fluttering, the book of Deuteronomy picks up on on this imagery as well. It's used throughout the the scriptures of this way of just saying, oh, like God has got you and he's gonna lift you and he's gonna carry you. And he's gonna make sure like these little birds, like that they process and they become like what they're created to be. So he recognizes where they're at and he's leading them somewhere else. And friends, that imagery is meant to communicate to us, oh, the Lord's about to do this thing. And what was true back however many thousands of years ago, back then in Genesis 1, is also true now that in the tohu vabohu of your life and of my life and the void that we feel, the Lord in his tenderness and his compassion and his nearness is like, just wait. Like there's new creation bursting forth in the midst of the void and the darkness and the emptiness. And do you and I believe that? Do we believe that the creator God is the same one that's this bringing about this new creation, that we live on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. And we know that one day there's gonna be a new heavens and a new earth. There's this new creation story that we are part of. And so this is why the apostle Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Like if you're in Christ, he says, here's your new identity. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. The tohu vabohu, it is gone. And behold, the new has come. There's this whole new way to live. And so there's this story that's been playing out since Genesis 1. And there's this invitation that we have. Will you step into that story? When you hear the Lord speak to you, will you see him meet you with just the tenderness and the compassion? that he's hovering over your life and in my life, that he's wanting to do something, but not just individually. He's also hovering over our church and the community has placed us in. God does not need you. He doesn't need me. But as we see how the story goes, he chooses to work in and through us. That God has a plan in his grace to use us for his purposes. And so for those that are in Christ, we're this new creation. He's asking us to consider like, are you ready? Are you ready to see what the Lord might do in and through you as you surrender and you trust him with the void and the meaningless, the tohu of abohu that you and I face? Are you ready to see what he's going to do, the new creation that he's going to bring about, the, the, the fruitfulness that he's gonna work in and through you, but also through us? And are you ready to see the ways that that is gonna be used for the good, not only of our church and us individually, but for the community that he's placed us in because there is a world that has a lot of void and darkness and a meaninglessness and not knowing where to turn or where to go. And in a non-judgmental, in a way of just love, people say, come, and God invites us to that. He doesn't, again, he doesn't need us, but he invites us. And so would we heed this? Are you ready to step into this part of the story as well? And I'll close by reading the subsequent verses out of 2 Corinthians 5. All this friends is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Like he's doing the work and yet he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. What a gift that is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself. The whole thing he's reconciling to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Friends, are you ready to step into that story and to see new creation burst forth in the places of darkness and of void, to see Jesus' kingdom of light advance and to push back the darkness? said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates are there in a defensive place. The church is moving forward. It's an offensive strategy. Like we're going out and we're seeing God do his work and he's choosing to do it through us. May we be agents of reconciliation in each other's lives and in the community. And if all of it is rooted in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God that all of the punishment we deserve was put on Jesus. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness, that that might flow to us. And it's from that new creation posture that we live lives of gratitude, thankfulness, of now compassion saying, Lord, would you use me? I surrender. Are you ready? Let me pray for us that the Lord would make us ready for all that he might have for us. Who knows what it is, but I'm excited to see what he's gonna do in and through us as we explore our origin story that informs our future story together as the church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your kindness, your grace to us. Thank you for being personal and absolute. Thank you for being relational. Thank you for being love. We give you praise for those realities. And I thank you that you have condescended to us, that you've made a way for us to be in relationship with you. Holy Spirit lead us now in a time of just repentance, the ways that we've tried to fill the void with lesser things. May we rejoice in our identity in the gospel, the new creation that we, that we have, that we are. And Lord, would you use us in the community? Would you prepare us even for this next season in the life of our church, Lord? That we wouldn't do it for our name, but we would be doing it, God, for your glory, for the good of our neighbors. And would we just experience just a deep and abiding joy as we do this work that you've invited us into. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.